The time is 10.01 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk is up next. morning and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is CJ Walk and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. So today for our show, we're going to spend the hour talking about the history of organic farming in the United States, the rise of organic-focused organizations like MOFCA, and the transition to the USDA National Organic Program and Organic Production Rule. So I have a few guests uh, that are joining me for the show today. And first on the phone joining me for the show is Dr. Eric Seidman, who is MOFCA's Eric or MOFCA's Organic Crop Specialist and began working for MOFCA in 1986. Eric is considered the first organic extension agent in the country and has been deeply involved in most of the changes in organic farming practices and regulations in recent decades. Eric, thank you for joining me today. Good morning, CJ. Thanks for having me back. Sure thing. Um, And then also joining me here in the studio is Diane Shavera, and Diane is MOFCA's Organic Livestock Specialist. Diane has worked for MOFCA since 1998 uh, and has also been through a lot of the history and changes in organic farming regulations uh, in recent decades. So, Diane, thanks for being here today. Thanks for inviting me, CJ. Sure. (laughs) And then um, to let our listeners know that about halfway through the show, we have a third guest that will be joining us by phone, and that will be uh, Jim Gerritsen of Wood Prairie Farm up in Bridgewater, Maine. So because we'll have two guests on the phone, we really will not have space for taking phone calls today. So I apologize to listeners for that, but um, I am happy to have uh, so many important uh, folks in on the show today. It just means we had to use up all the phone lines to do it. So, um, But getting uh, back to the topic of the show for today, talking about some the history of organic farming in the U.S. and then kind of honing in a bit on some of the activities in Maine over decades. Um, I think to start out, really what I wanted to do was, Eric, kind of give you the the first question here and just really ask, what is organic farming or what is organic and and what does it mean? Well, CJ, I think in order to answer that question, we have to look at history, uh, which I wish I paid more attention to when I was in high school. Um, (laughs) Organic farming started in the early 1900s, and um, there were fathers and mothers of organic farming, but I think the key person was a man named Sir Albert Howard, and he was a British mycologist who somehow ended up uh, directing agricultural research in India in the early part of the 1900s. But he came up with what I consider to be the founding principle of organic farming, and he called it the law of return. And what that is, is he believed that the soils were becoming less healthy uh, as people were putting less of the organic materials back into the soil. And so the law of return was really returning organic materials 
manures, crop waste, things like that, back to the soil, because this is what fed the microorganisms in the soil and built and maintained the soil fertility and the humus content. And so he was the father of compost also, because he was the one who developed this idea of one of the ways of getting the organic material back to the soil. It it came to America in the 1940s when uh, J.I. Rodale um, popularized organic farming and gardening with his uh, magazine, and I think it was called Organic Farming and Organic Gardening. Um, And then through the 1940s and into the 70s, it was a real polarizing event. Um, And I guess it was due to the fact that conventional growers became threatened by by the popularization of this idea of organic farming, essentially turning away from chemical fertilizers that essentially only address the 16 or 17 different nutrients a crop need and ignored the soil. Um, And they were threatened by the people who really relied on building better soils for better crops. Um, And so this comes actually home to Maine uh, in the 70s uh, and maybe the late 60s and early 80s as well, when it was the back to the landers, people who started to come back to farming, moving out of the cities and the suburbs and returning to the farm to grow food for their neighbors. Um, and this became very popular, and as more and more neighbors wanted food, Uh, these back-to-the-landers and the young organic farmers of the 70s uh, began to sell to food stores, organic food stores, health food stores, things like that. And then they started to sell to those stores further away. And what that led to is the consumer no longer knowing who their farmer was. And that led to certification. And so um, in the early 70s, certification programs started to pop up. These were programs that used guidelines of what organic farming was. Um, The first one, I believe, was in Europe by uh, IFOM, International Federation of Organic Farming Movements. And then um, this was adapted by Rodale in his magazine. Um, And in 1972, MAFCA was the first uh, organization in the United States to have a certification program. We just followed the one that Rodale used, which was following the iPhone one. Um, And that certification program was the beginning of assuring consumers that their food was raised according to organic guidelines. And it actually all goes back to this idea of the law of return. Um, I like to point out to people that the original definition of what organic farming and gardening is Um, is not what is prohibited. Lots of people think of organic farming as the kind of farming that does not allow pesticides. But really, that's a very small part of it. It's this law of return. Organic farming guidelines are all about the guidelines that mandate this law of return, taking care of the soil, returning the organic matter to the soil, and practices that foster better soil. Okay. Um Okay. Thanks for that good, good account of history. And I just wanted to ask a couple questions with uh, MOFCA certification beginning in 1972 and following the Rodale guidelines. Were there other 
As far as you know, were there other state organizations doing the similar thing? Yes, and actually there are arguments between them who was first. Um, California certified organic farmers started roughly around the same time. Uh, North Dakota farm verified organic uh, started roughly the same time a little bit later. Oh, by the time I came to Moscow in the mid-'80s, there were probably 20 or more certifiers across the country, most of them nonprofit organizations. Um, and then uh, it started to spring up that states were setting up guidelines. And so even Maine had a law saying what organic farming was, um, and a handful of other states around the country had them too. Okay, so mostly nonprofit organizations, and then with kind of support of the states, or would it be different? Um, different both. Places? In some states, they were antagonistic, and in some states, they were very supportive. Um, and so, uh, Mafka really formed around this idea of uh, farmers getting together and sharing information. But basically, they were supposed to be organic farmers, and Mafka had a large umbrella and had some farmers who were not organic who just wanted to be uh, small-scale farmers providing food to their neighbors and others who wanted to follow the organic standards. And I think that was pretty common. Uh, Oregon, Oregon Tilt started around the same time, um, and then the NOFA chapters in Vermont and some other New England states started around the same time. And all of these were based around this idea of re- uh, the law of return and farming to based around taking care of the, of the soil. Okay. And were most of those organizations kind of basing that on the Rodale principles? Yeah, they were. In fact, uh, I, I used to say there were all these little differences between these nonprofit certification programs, but 99% of their requirements were the same. And and that's because they were all based essentially around the iPhone situation in Europe, which Rodale popularized here in America. When I first came in 1986, we were certifying uh, someplace around 15, 20 farms, um, and it expanded from then. And I think the programs were roughly the same. In California, they were bigger, but they were still under 100 in those days. Okay, so the numbers were still pretty small for certified organic farms. Very small, but they grew quickly. By the 90s, um, we were certifying well over 100, and California was in the 500 to 1,000 farms. So things started to explode in the early 90s uh, as organic farming uh, became popular um, among growers, but even more popular among uh, a small sector of the consuming population. Okay, and so it seems like the that consumer demand, um, especially with the food, maybe traveling further than the farm the farm gate so to speak that that was really the verification and the on the consumer side that they knew what they were getting if they didn't that's right and that's exactly what happened as some of the farms were selling further and further away a small number of farms became bigger and bigger and started to sell outside of their state and it was these larger farms and then organic food distributors that felt um that between states uh, they had to unify the standards, which Mofka in the early days was kind of opposed to because we felt that since they were all 99% similar, um, that wasn't very important. Uh, But the large-scale food distributors still didn't want to have even the tiniest difference. And so 
So they pushed for national standards. And uh, in the late 80s, uh, MAFCA joined the organizations that were trying to write a bill to pass through Congress. It was controversial even within the MAFCA community because this was not going to help MAFCA farmers. There were very, very few MAFCA farmers selling across state lines. Um, but there were enough MAFCA people who wanted a national standard, and in 1990, the Organic Food Production Act was passed by Congress, which um, set the development in action of a national set of standards, which took effect in 2002. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask a couple other questions, kind of guess in that 1980s range, um, or some of some of the differences between the different certifiers across the country, and if those were just more regionally specific or crop specific things, um, do you have any ex- remember any examples from that? Yeah, they actually were to some extent they were regional and also demand of the farmers within their location. Um, so some certifiers were allowing Chilean nitrate and others were not. Chilean nitrate is a natural mined rock. It's a sodium nitrate. And the reason some farmers, I mean, excuse me, some certifiers did not allow it was it really did not address that law of return. It was a chemical fertilizer, even though it was natural, and it just provided a a source of fertility to the crop. Um, And the problem is, is if you use that material um, on a small scale, it's not a problem. But if you start using that material on a larger and larger scale because it's so uh, easy to use, you get away from this law of return and you stop putting the organic matter back into the soil. And so the, the regulations that some certifiers uh, wrote to prohibit Chilean nitrate were really based around the idea that they didn't want farmers to uh, start using that and become less dependent on the law of return. Moscow is in that camp, um, but other certifiers were allowing this material for touch-up materials. Another difference that sticks in my mind still today was the idea of parasiticides, and and Diane can talk about this perhaps later, but um, raising livestock in a humid climate like we have in New England, uh, parasites are very important. And so when Mafka wrote their standards, uh, we allowed parasiticides, but we did things like doubled the withdrawal period and only allowed them to be used when necessary, not on a routine basis and so on. And um, in the drier climates, the drier regions of our country, parasiticides were prohibited um, because they weren't really needed. And so it was easy to prohibit them. Um, But the law of return was harder to use uh, when you're farming out in the middle of the desert. It's hard to get enough organic matter to return to the soil. And so uh, they allowed much more of the materials that were essentially mined rocks and natural, um, but immediately available and not supporting the basic principles of organic farming. But these were, they were pretty small differences for the most part. Uh, we really all agreed with each other. I think that was one of the, and what you're talking about, Eric, is, is one of the, the big problems of trying to write a rule that goes across the whole country. And that it, it ends up with a lot of the arguments that go back and forth about things because that, what's needed in one place isn't needed in another. Yes, and, and some things that support the basic principles of organic farming are easier 
to attain in one part of the country than another part of the country. Um, There's some parts of the country where um, livestock can graze all year long and it's easy to meet the rule, and the other parts of the country where it's uh, harder but possible, and some parts of the country where it's very hard uh, to meet the grazing standards. Right. Okay. Um, Then just... Thinking, uh, kind of staying on those those earlier days of certification, I guess, um, was it MOFCA staff that would think about these um, these rules and things, or was it kind of a community effort with No, it farmers? was a community effort. It was um, one of my favorite days of the year. We used <laughs> to have a meeting of um, certified growers, and we would address all of the issues that they felt that were important. And essentially, it was the certification committee following this uh, guidelines uh, brought up at the certified growers meeting. We would write the standards, and they would get approved by the certification committee and then go to the MOFCA board. It was really a community effort because MOFCA in those days was uh, really made up of mostly growers. Okay. And was that a time, too, when maybe there were new materials that would surface and... Yes, no question about it. As the, as more and more people were turning to organic farming, um, there's always the business world that thought they could make a profit, and you would start seeing all sorts of materials uh, coming out in bags um, that were available to organic growers to sell to uh, buy, um, and pest materials that were uh, available for growers to buy, and so it was sort of following the path of the profit motive. Yeah, there was also, I can remember, a big discussion about um, changing the rules. Originally, um, young livestock were allowed to be fed conventional grain, and that was a big deal when we shifted it over, and it took a a long time and a lot of discussion before we kind of said, no, that everybody has to be fed organic grain, Hmm. not just the producing stock. So I imagine that could get rather difficult trying to review all these new materials showing up um, to see maybe, you know, maybe some weren't really going to be useful for the state of Maine, but I imagine some were. Um, Mm -hmm. Would you have farmers that would maybe be able to trial things in terms of effectiveness, or was it just down to kind of what is the material in this product that you would be applying to the land? Well, we would be trialing some of the things. Uh, I I think, but what you bring up is the idea of who's going to decide if it meets organic standards or not is a big one. And as uh, more and more materials made it onto the marketplace, um, certifiers did not have the ability to review them, uh, often simply because they didn't have the time. And so that was when the Organic Material Review Institute, OMRI, began to uh, get pulled together. Um, This was on the West Coast especially where farmers were bigger and uh, wanted to buy more bagged inputs for the farm, and somebody had to be reviewing these bagged inputs. And um, so there was this need for this uh, nonprofit review institute to spring up that really served farmers and certifiers as deciding uh, what meets the organic principles and what doesn't. Okay, and that that makes sense in terms of thinking... About even today, you can find all sorts of products on the shelves that have the word organic on them, but would not be allowed in certified organic production. Yes, that's right. So. Yes, the, the word organic can be used in very many ways. Um, and-
And the interesting thing about we now have the national standards that follow the Organic Food Production Act, but actually that regulates um, the food. It does not regulate um, the industry of inputs. Um, And so it's really up to the farmer and the certifier to decide whether a certain input uh, meets the standards or not. And so there's actually no regulation uh, saying that this fertilizer company can't say on the bag that the word organic, because the word organic is regulated in respect to agricultural products, uh, not agricultural inputs. And so it's up to uh, the certifiers who uh, often depend on their own review programs or the Organic uh, Review uh, um, Institute, OMRI, to decide whether the material can be used on the farm. So the, the rule actually tells farmers what they can use. It doesn't tell the manufacturers how they can label their bags. Okay. That seems like a... Significant point. <laughs> yeah. um, so then how about when moving after the, the passage of the Organic Foods Production Act in 1990, and then the, uh, the NOSB, the National Organic Standards Board, came along, and that was that the body that worked on what we have today as the, the, the national rule that certified farmers follow? The way... So in 1990, the Organic Food Production Act was passed by Congress, and this instructed the USDA uh, to create a national organic program. And the, the, the mission of the national organic program was, number one, to write standards. These are the rules that support the law. Um, essentially, the, the Organic Food Production Act is the law, and then the USDA wrote rules uh, that farmers have to follow um, in their guidelines written by the certifiers that support that law. Um, So the National Organic Program of the USDA has that one uh, mission to write the rule, and then the other mission that they have is to accredit certifiers across the country um, that can essentially work with farmers and, and certify them to make sure that they are following the National Production Act, excuse me, the National Organic Program regulations. So there's two things, uh, accredit certifiers and write the rules. And it's the certifier, uh, MAFCA is an accredit certifier, who actually works with the farmers. Okay. All right. And then during that, I mean, it was a good decade from the, <clears throat> from the passage of the, the Act until 2002, I believe, when the rule was implemented. In that period was there... Was it all USDA work, or were they out talking with farmers and other organizations? Oh, okay. That's where you brought up the word National Organic Standards Board. So between 1990 and 2002, uh, the USDA was writing proposed regulations, um, and these regulations came out, and there were comment periods on them. Uh, The first regulation that came out received the largest number of comments of any other regulation written, um, at that, up until that time, uh, because it actually did not do a very good job of representing what was organic up until that point. Um, and that way they went back to the drawing board and rewrote the regulation. Um, during this period, during the latter half of it, is when the National Organic Standards Board, the NOSB, came into existence. Part of the congressional law that was written was the USDA was to create an advisory 
board. And that's what the National Organic Standards Board is, that it's an advisory board that helps the USDA um, write their regulations. And so the National Organic Standards Board essentially gives advice to the USDA, but the final decision is made by the, by the Secretary of Agriculture in the USDA. Um, I served on the National Organic Standards Board from 1997 until 2002, and it was actually a very interesting period because that was the period when the first proposed rule came out from the USDA that was so bad. Um, and so the NOSB played a very big part in rewriting that first proposed rule. And I think what they finally came out with that went into effect in October of 2002 actually does a very good job of representing what was considered to be organic by those certifiers across the country before there were national standards written. Okay. <laughs> so that brings us to 2002. And then, and then at that point... Um, at that point, all of the certifying agencies like MOFCA and <clears throat> and other nonprofits needed to become accredited through the USDA to continue. Kind of and the that's right. So everything process. changed at that point. The law of the land was the regulation written by the USDA, which I thought was a fairly good regulation and did a good job representing what everyone considered organic. Um, the National Organic Standards Board is still in existence today. And this, all the certifiers across the country essentially follow the same set of regulations. Um, and the National Organic Standards Board <clears throat> plays a big role in helping the USDA maintain those standards. The issue is that when you write something down, you have an idea of what you mean by that. Um, but when somebody reads it, they may have a different idea. And so basically it's the little gaps between the lines where something is just left out or maybe it's an interpretation that is interpreted differently across the country. And so since 2002 um, until the present, um, the USDA has been trying to fill those gaps and clarify the different interpretations so everyone is interpreting the rule the same. Okay. All right. Well, I'll just, I'll just step back for a minute to remind listeners that this is Common Ground Radio. And today we're talking... Um, we're talking about the history of organic farming in the United States uh, and kind of focusing on the past uh, few recent decades with uh, certified or with organic certification, kind of moving from nonprofit organizations around the country to uh, a USDA uh, a USDA program. And uh, my guests with me so far are Eric Seidman, who is MOFCA's organic crop specialist, and Diane Chevera, who is MOFCA's organic livestock specialist, both who have worked for a couple decades or more with MOFCA and, and have been part of the history along the way. So um, so I think, uh, Eric, at this point, I was just thinking about kind of thinking about the 2002 and moving forward. I'm sure that there were still revisions and new products that come along. Um, maybe there's some good debates and things that we could discuss a little bit later when when our third guest joins. Um, but I'm just curious if the, the process still remains the same, more or less, in terms of reviewing and 
and making sure that the, the regulations are still current and effective. Mm-hmm. Well, the big change is actually one that happened to me. Um, part of the regulation that the USDA put into effect was that the person making a decision, whether a farm is certified or not, cannot be a person who gives advice to the farm. They considered this a conflict of interest. Um, and prior to 2002, I actually ran the certification program and I was the crop advisor at MAFCA, and Diane was the livestock advisor, and she worked with me running the certification program as well. And so for both Diane and me, uh, October 2002 was a date um, that was memorable because we had to make a choice between running the certification program at MAFCA because we became an accredited certifier for the USDA, we had to choose between running the certification program or working with farmers, and we both decided that we rather work with farmers um, being crop advisors and livestock advisors. Um, and I thought that at first, but in the end, I came to agree with them. Now, the reason it's a conflict of interest is that if you give advice to a farmer, uh, you want that advice to succeed. And that means you've now taken ownership in the farm, and this could flavor your decision one way or the other. Okay. All right. Well, um, also just want to take a minute here. I believe we have our third guest is on the line now, and uh, Jim Gerritsen from Wood Prairie Farm up in Bridgewater, Maine, should be on the phone with us. Are you there, Jim? Yes, I'm on. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Jim has been a longtime organic farmer up in northern Maine and also a longtime organic advocate. So, uh, Jim, thanks for being here, and I'll give you kind of a, um, a little bit of where what we've been talking about for the first half hour of the show. We've kind of looked at some of the history of organic farming in the U.S. and looking at the early days of certification uh, through MOFCA and other nonprofits around the country and kind of what we just got through with um, with Eric Seidman is talking about getting to the point in 2002 when the NOP rule took effect and kind of some of the changes. Eric just spoke about some of the changes they had to make with um, no longer being able to certify and provide advice to farmers and, and making the move to more of that extension and advice piece rather than continuing with the certification program. Um, so, and then Jim. Perhaps I should step in for one second, CJ. Okay. It was at that point that MAFCA split off our certification program, and our certification program now is an LLC. Um, it is independent of MAFCA, even though it is essentially owned by MAFCA, um, but they are a, a group of people who make the decision whether a farm is certified or not, and Diane and I have nothing to do with that. I also want to say good morning, Jim, um, and also point out that uh, I mentioned our certification committee and how we made the decisions and decided who was certified back in the old days, and Jim was a member of that original certification committee back in the 80s. Yeah, I came on um, back in the mid-80s and uh, served on the committee for just about 25 years, and uh, Eric was, you know, uh, led the committee for most of that time, but he and I worked together for 25 years, and 
I do remember in those early years, part of the challenge was in finding a vehicle uh, reliable enough to get me down to the meetings. And, you know, in Hallowell, I, I, it was where we first met, and then when we shifted over Unity. But it was a long way down, and it was a, a full day going to meetings. And there were many, many meetings over the course of 25 years. Okay. And then, Jim, I just wanted to... Um so that you were aware that Diane Chavera is also here with us. She's sitting in the studio with me today. Hi, Diane. How are you doing? Good, Jim. Since you guys all know each other. Yes. Um, so I guess we kind of, we're up to kind of current history and things. And what one of the questions I was thinking about, um, because, Eric, I think right in the very beginning when we were talking about what is organic and you mentioned people often thinking about what is prohibited or what you can and what you can't do, uh, in some of the materials over time, I just wanted to ask a quick question about some materials being constantly reviewed or coming up for a review every so often, and some materials, um, I know like the antibiotic use for fire blight control in apple and pear orchards is something that was sunset uh, a few years back. So it's still constantly revolving in terms of new materials coming on, maybe old things cycling off. Yeah, the antibiotics are still allowed. Um, the way the the regulation is written, um, synthetic essentially is based around this idea that natural materials are allowed and synthetic materials are prohibited. But, of course, there's exceptions to every rule. And so in the USDA regulation defining organic, there are a series of lists. Uh, one of the lists is synthetic materials, that are allowed and antibiotics are actually on that list with certain restrictions and certain uh, limiting to certain kinds of antibiotics um, other synthetics that are on the list that sort of i use as examples because people say why are synthetics are allowed well they include things like soap insecticidal soaps have always been allowed um, in organic production and soap is synthetic so it's on the list of prohibited synthetics and then there are is a list of natural materials prohibited, um, and things on that list, for example, are nicotine, which is obviously a natural material, but it's not allowed, and arsenic is not allowed in organic production, and so on and so forth. And then there are similar lists for our livestock production and for processing and handling. Okay. Oh, and the reason I brought them up is because you mentioned the word sunset. The way those lists are written is that anything that's on those lists are actually only on the list for five years, and then they sunset, and they essentially have to be put back on the list, although that's a little complicated. We don't want to get into that, and the USDA <laughs> uh, changed the way that's handled now, and it's actually on that list, but every five years the NOSB has the opportunity to take it off the list. Okay. All right. Well, um, I think this has been, you know, a definitely good, very good overview and detailed overview of, of where we've been over the past 30, 50 so years. Um, but I think now, um, especially with, with Jim on the phone and Jim on the line here for the show, um, I'd like to get into maybe some of the more current issues that are surfacing within the organic community. Um, and I know that uh, some things can be somewhat controversial. Um, I'll just start a little bit maybe more historical with 
the genetic engineering piece where within the organic rule, as far as I'm aware, um, genetic engineering was never allowed. Um, and then there were things like, and Jim, I'm going to direct this question to you since, since you are a, a, a potato farmer, but something in the past about a new leaf potato that had come out. Um, and I was wondering if just to get a little history or maybe background on, on that, that crop. Well, um, of course, uh, it was a product uh, uh, invented by Monsanto. Uh, it was a, a genetically engineered transgenic Bt potato to where uh, a, the bacterial toxin Bt was gene spliced into every cell of the potato plant. So, of course, because uh, genetic engineering is considered a prohibited method within organic, it would never, ever be acceptable in organic to, to do that. But Monsanto came in in uh, the mid-1990s with this BT, and I think one of the <clears throat> interesting um, uh, aspects of it is that when they came to the state of Maine, they were required by uh, the board of, Maine Board of Pesticide Control to register their uh, food product as a pesticide because under Maine law, uh, the transgenic application of BT was an example of a pesticide that had to be registered. So uh, how is that for a marketing challenge to be growing a potato that has been registered with the state as a pesticide? And in fact, after five or six years, uh, there was a market rejection of those potatoes, and they were voluntarily removed from the market by Monsanto. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Well, it's interesting. Interesting that I guess over time things that that come and go are things that are tr that are tried uh, in the marketplace. Um, so, in terms of Jim, I wanted to ask you that in terms of um, kind of more current challenges uh, to the organic system or to organic farming in itself. I know that you've been a very uh, strong advocate over the years. Um, and I wanted to give you a chance uh, just to speak up a bit here today. Okay. Well, <clears throat> maybe in addition to being a MOFCA-certified organic potato farmer for the last 35 years, um, I'm also president of a national group called Organic Seed Growers and Trade Association, and we're probably most famous for having filed a federal lawsuit against Monsanto in March of 2011 in an effort to try to challenge and invalidate their transgenic uh, patents. Um, and we gained a partial victory after three years. Um, but one of the issues that has very, been very important to our organization, and I think to organic farmers everywhere, is the structure of how the Organic Foods Production Act of 1990 created a mechanism, a, um, a partnership between the private industry and the government to try to make this organic uh, industry work. And leading up to that <clears throat> passage of Senator Leahy in Vermont's uh, organic law in 1990, there was a lot of distrust of the USDA. Uh, they have historically been uh, an adversary of organic. And if you look at USDA is really expressing kind of a captive quality of being uh, captive to corporate interests that promote uh, industrial um, production and 
chemical intensive, it, it's, it's kind of easy to see that organic represents an entirely different paradigm. So in order for the organic community to accept the concept of USDA regulation, the law created a unique um, private-public partnership. So you had the USDA had the National Organic Program, which were staffers in USDA, the NOP. But then you had also created a 15-member uh, panel of experts from the organic community called the National Organic Standards Board, NOSB. And as it was visualized by Senator Leahy and those of us who worked on that bill, the idea was for a partnership so that you would have a fairly equal um, relationship between the NOSB, whose duty was to make recommendations to the uh, NOP, uh, and to address the issues of material inputs. Um, the way over time it has evolved is that the uh, NOSB is a very, very junior partner to NOP, that the NOP very often acts uh, in defiance of recommendations from the NOSB. And the lack of respect given by uh, USDA through its NOP to the NOSB is precipitating a kind of a um, uh, rejection of uh, the USDA uh, authority over organic. For example, uh, in my role as president of OSCADA, I attend the NOSB meetings, and we have one coming up at the very end of this month in Jacksonville, Florida. I was at the last meeting in Denver back in April, and there were three uh, uh, input materials for uh, organic processors that were uh, up for sunset review, uh, and not a single company indicated that there was a current need for those materials. The NOSB voted unanimously 14 to 0 on all three items that they be removed from the list, yet the USDA uh, reversed that and put these materials back on the list when there's been no indication of any need for it. So I think that's kind of an illustration of a system gone awry in that the USDA is not uh, listening to the advisory body that was set up. And I think what's particularly valuable for a historical perspective is that Eric Seidman served a five-year term on the NOSB, and it might be interesting to hear his appraisal of how things were back in his day and maybe how they have uh, uh, evolved to where we are today. Yeah, um, Jim, before you got on, Eric did mention some of his time there on the NOSB and, and looking at those or at that whole process. Um, and But I also know I just wanted to hear your perspective added as well because, uh, because I know that you were, you were definitely in, involved and, uh, and active during, during that time. Well, so, uh, C.J., when you brought up some of the uh, more modern issues, one that is of great concern to every organic farmer and should be of great concern to every organic consumer is that of the USDA's behavior when it comes to the issue of hydroponics. And uh, back in 2010, the NOSB had a vote uh, after long discussion. They had a vote and achieved consensus. The vote was 12 to 1 in which the NOSB ruled that hydroponics, which is a soilless production system in which crops are raised uh, 
in water and provided with soluble nutrients where soil is not a part of it at all. Uh, that 2010 NOSB rule that hydroponics are not an appropriate production uh, system for organic. Yet despite that clear consensus by the NOSB, the USDA, uh, it turns out, continued to allow certain certifiers to allow hydroponic, hydroponic operations to be certified, even though, of course, there have never been any standards created for hydroponics because over the 100-year history of organic, it's always been a soil-based system. And the soil-based system has been important for the success of the production of organic crops through um, insect control and disease control because healthy plants grow when grown in healthy soil. So you've got superior production practices, superior nutrition, and a history going back 100 years that organic has always been in soil. So in defiance of that uh, historical norm, uh, the USDA, secret and hidden from virtually everyone, was allowing certifiers to certify these hydroponic operations and to present their uh, products, their produce, to the marketplace as certified organic without any differentiation that it was, in fact, hydroponically grown. And we think that's outrageous. So now this Jacksonville NOSB meeting coming up, there will be an, uh, another major discussion about uh, hydroponics and uh, whether it has a place in organic. And many of us think that it has never had a place in organic, and we're very unhappy that USDA um, uh, acquiesced with these powerful corporate hydroponic operations and let them get certified in the first place. Okay. Um, I think Maybe I should say a little bit about uh, the beginning of this, um, because it started long before 2010, as Jim alluded to. Um, Back in the beginning, in 2002, when the standards were written, it never addressed the idea of hydroponic, and so there are no standards uh, written into the regulation that the National Organic Program put together. Um, sometime after that, though, uh, some farmers who were growing or, uh, hydroponically, as Jim said, without any soil at all, um, felt that they could... Uh, get certified organic and they approach some certifiers at this point the nop not having any standards made what i think is one of their major mistakes um, and that is they let certifiers decide on their own uh, whether or not to allow hydroponics essentially letting the certifier decide whether they can ignore certain sections of the rule um, since there were no standards specifically mentioning the word hydroponic, there are a handful of certifiers that said, well, all those sections of the rule that have the word soil and require the maintenance and the building of soil, um, if there is no soil, this does not apply. Um, of course, that's wrong because in those sections is the legal word must. Um, the farmer must maintain and Im or improve their soil. And so you really can't ignore that in my mind. Um, but the USDA National Organic Program made the mistake to let certifiers decide this on their own. So you have a small number of certifiers across the country who have big clients and they're making lots of money off those clients who are growing hydroponic and they're certifying them. 
and then the majority of certifiers are not allowing hydroponic. And that does include MOFCA. That's right. MOFCA has never allowed hydroponic production. And it actually goes back to some of the listeners may have been on this program right from the beginning. And if you remember the beginning when I first started talking about the history of organic farming, it was Sir Albert Howard who started, I consider, the father of organic farming and the law of return, the idea of returning organic material to the soil, manures and crop waste, et cetera, to build and maintain the soil. That is what organic farming is. And so hydroponic could not be organic. It doesn't have soil. It, doesn't, uh, it is not based upon the idea of taking care of the soil. It may be a decent way of growing crops, and I think it may serve purpose in space travel, um, but it has <laughs> nothing to do with farming and certainly nothing to do with organic farming, and it is people trying to make a profit off of um, what we built over the years as a very uh, valuable term in the marketplace. And, and I think something that is inescapable is the scale of production of these hydroponic operations is to the extreme mega operations. These are incredibly large, mega, mega corporate operations that have, have in some cases, taken old warehouses. The plants never see the light of day. They have uh, artificial lighting, artificial water pumped, um, supposedly organic uh, inputs put in, but uh, we have an organic inspector that is telling us that it's virtually impossible to inspect a hydroponic operation, that cheating could go on one day using uh, synthetic materials, and then the next day when the inspector comes, they switch to organic materials, and it would not be um, uh, possible to uh, detect the, uh, the cheating. But the, the scale is an issue here. These are not little mom-and-pop operations. These are uh, operations like Wholesome Harvest and Driscoll, some of the largest um, uh, greenhouse producers in the world, and they want access to the organic market because they've failed uh, with hydroponics. Their hydroponics is uh, something that the consumer has a revulsion to because of the lack of taste, and they basically want to take the word organic, apply it to their products, fool organic consumers, and unfairly compete against family-scale farmers like we have here in the state of Maine. And one interesting thing to add to that is that the, uh, the regulations beyond organic regulations, just agricultural regulations, do not require hydroponics to be labeled. So you can shop in the supermarket today, and if you go to Whole Foods, for example, and buy berries that are labeled organic raspberries or blackberries, they are probably hydroponic berries grown in containers out in the middle of the desert. If you buy tomatoes at Whole Foods, they are probably hydroponic tomatoes raised in Mexico in a greenhouse, um, and they are labeled organic and don't mention the word hydroponic because they don't have to. In fact, it gets more extreme than that. Our research indicates that virtually all tomatoes that are sold in American supermarkets now are the result of hydroponics production, whether it's in the summer or the winter. Okay, and then can I just ask for, for clarity if... if it was up to the individual certifiers to determine what would they really just be looking at a list of inputs and making sure that they were approved Yes, that's inputs. exactly right. So what has changed in the past couple of decades since the rules taken place 
is they have developed some new materials um, that have immediately available nutrients or very quickly available nutrients in them that are water-soluble. Um, the, the most common one used by hydroponic facilities is a hydrolyzed soy protein. Um, and so this is an, uh, essentially a natural material. They've actually had it reviewed by the Organic Material Review Institute, and they've determined that the process of making, essentially they break the protein down to its amino acids, um, and now they're using soluble amino acids through that hydrolyzation process that are put into the water to feed the crops. And, you know, the bottom line is you can't ignore one law and say you're abiding by another law. Uh, Eric made reference to uh, the federal rule, which was the uh, regulations created from the Organic Foods Production Act of 1990. Here is one um, uh, short um, excerpt from that. And, again, in legal language, the word must is not the equivalent of if you feel like it or if you want to, <laughs> it is a requirement. So under 205.203B, uh, the producer must manage crop nutrients and soil fertility through rotations, cover crops, and the application of plant and animal materials. So management of soil is a requirement. And if you're doing hydroponics without soil, it is illegal because it does not meet the requirements of the federal rule, which are in concert with the OFPA law. It's illegal. This production is illegal, and the USDA is looking the other way and allowing it. And it's an untenable situation. So towards that end, we have a rally planned uh, at Broadturn Farm in Scarborough on Sunday, October 15th uh, at 12 noon, and we're inviting everyone from Maine and New Hampshire and anywhere to attend. And these kind of issues about keeping the soil in their organic are going to be talked about. I know Eric is coming. I know that I'm coming down, and we have other speakers that are going to address this. But we encourage all of our listeners to come out, because if you want to preserve the right to get authentic uh, organic food for your family, the survival of organic family farmers is at stake. And if we can't remain in business because of this unfair corporate competition, uh, consumers' access to bona fide organic food is going to disappear. So it's, it's very critical, and we're at a very important juncture in the history of organic, whether the concept that we have created over the last 40 years of family-scale organic farmers farming in the soil is going to continue or whether the tidal wave of corporate hydroponics is going to drown us all out. Okay, well, um, I have to say that this has been an excellent hour. We've only got a couple minutes left. Um, and I just wanted to, just to get the date again, Jim, you said that was October 15th at Broadturn Farm? Yes, in Scarborough. In Scarborough. Sunday. And if people wanted to find out more information, is there a, a resource that people could look at? Um, yeah, uh, they can go to the website, keepthesoilinorganic.org, and there are rallies uh, uh, across the United States and even into England and Costa Rica uh, supporting the idea of keeping soil inorganic, and that means keeping out illegal hydroponic operations. So keepthesoilinorganic.org has links to all of the rallies, including the one here in Maine.
Okay. All right. Well, we are in the last minute here, so I really appreciate having everybody on the show today. Uh, we talked about the history of organic and some current challenges and, and issues uh, with Eric Seidman from MOFCA, Diane Chevera also from MOFCA, and Jim Gerritsen from uh, Wood Prairie Farm up in Bridgewater, Maine. I want to thank you all for being here today. I really appreciate it. Um, I also want to thank Amy Brown for engineering today's show and remind listeners that Common Ground Radio is the first Friday of every month here on WERU right at 10 a.m. And stay tuned for On the Rip on the Wing. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape 